Hey guys, and welcome to Clear Skies. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I'm your host, Chloe, and today is an episode I am very, very excited about. Today we're going to be talking about my favorite constellation, Leo. So of course, this is a pretty well-known one, and some of you may have Leo as your zodiac sign. Um, And this is the second, I think, of the zodiac constellations that we're going to be covering. So like I said, I'm very excited about it. But before we get to the subject, we do have some other stuff to discuss. So um, again, I am going to ask that you guys go out and rate and review the podcast. I have been getting ratings and unfortunately I can't see your nicknames or usernames with those. So to my mystery raters, thank you so much for the five star ratings. But if you leave a comment, like a review with words in it, then I will be able to see your um, nickname and I can shout that out on the podcast. So please, please do that as it really does help us with the rankings and also with getting out to new audiences. And speaking of which, I do have a review to read. So let's see. Okay, so we have a five-star review from Skyantist. So thank you so, so much for the review. And here's what it says. So it is titled, Tycho Would Be Proud, which Tycho is um, a famous astronomer, for those of you that um, that don't know your ancient astronomy facts. <laughs> um, and later on, I do plan on doing some episodes about different famous astronomers, and so he will definitely be featured, as he's a very interesting person. But, sorry, the title is Tycho Would Be Proud. It is a five-star rating. And it says... You can sincerely tell how much work is put into making this podcast truly fun and inspiring. The material is easy to chew on and makes you want to dive deep into astronomy. This podcast has made me want to get back into learning in general, and I'm very happy to have found it. Host has a soothing voice but won't put you to sleep, seeing as you can hear the excitement in her voice about what we can find in our night sky. Star emoji. Can't wait to hear future episodes. So thank you. That has made my day. So thank you so, so much, Skyantist. And anyone listening, if you could pretty please also leave a review, it will make me beam. So please just do that for me. Now, before we begin, I did mention that this is my favorite constellation. And that got me thinking, part of the reason that I love astronomy so much is because it is something that everyone experiences and yet feels so personal. I have so many memories related to specific constellations, times that I saw specific satellites, specific planets, things like that. It's something that invokes a lot of emotion in people. You know, constellations and planets are something that we see all the time, and that can almost make us feel like we have a sense of home or a sense of belonging, even if we're very far away from home. There's something that tends to evoke a lot of emotion. And so, also, I have met some of my best friends in the whole, whole world through astronomy. And I feel like I cannot be the only person that has these personal connections or personal feelings to astronomical topics. So I would love to hear some of your guys' stories and thoughts. If you have a favorite planet, a favorite astronomer, a favorite constellation, Um, if you have an astrology sign that you feel especially connected to, let me know. Um, you can email it to me at clearskiespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's clearskiespodcast at gmail.com. 
or you can direct message me on Instagram at clear skies with Chloe. That's C-H-L-O-E. If you're okay with me reading it here on the podcast, let me know and I would love to do that. I think highlighting that personal side of astronomy, it is a science, but it's a science that we interact with on an intimate level every day or every night, I suppose. And so if you guys have any stories or any thoughts about that, please just let me know and I can start putting them on here because I would love to hear that. So anyway, back to Leo and the main show. Okay, so the plan for today, of course, is to talk about Leo. So first, what we're going to do is discuss the general shape of the constellation and how to find it. Then we'll go over the specific stars and deep sky objects within its boundaries. And then we will go through the mythology and history of this constellation in various cultures. So thank you again for joining me. So let's go to the jungle and see the king. bright and easily found constellation and is one of the 12, 13 zodiacal constellations. It's the third one that we're going to discuss. Now, this constellation is visible throughout almost the entire world, as all of the zodiacal constellations are. It's visible from positive 90 to negative 65 degrees latitude. Now, all of these are so visible because they lie along the ecliptic or the apparent path of the sun. That is the definition of a zodiacal constellation. The apparent path of the sun passes through it. For Leo, the sun passes through this constellation in late July through late August. So I think the astrology for a Leo is from July 21st or so forward. Well, the astronomy is that it starts July 23rd through August 23rd. And the constellation is highly visible in the northern latitudes from February through June. It's really visible year-round, with the exception of actually this month, while the sun is right on top of it. (laughs) This constellation is very, very recognizable and very easy to find. In fact, its shape, its brightness, and how easy it is to find is a lot of the reason that it is my absolute favorite constellation. Now, as you guys probably know, it is named Leo, and it is the shape of a lion. And to me, if you could imagine Simba from The Lion King, when he's like crouching down, playing with Nala about to pounce, that is the shape that I see when I look up at this constellation. It also is in a beautiful time of year. I just always know when I look up and I see Leo, it's beautiful, it's easy to find, it's beautiful outside. I just have the best associations with this constellation. So that being said, I am going to go ahead and tell you guys how to find it. There are a few ways that you can do this, but the easiest is actually starting with the Big Dipper, as most of the ones we've discussed are. So if you can find the Big Dipper, um, you'll want to face north, and then you will see that Dipper shape. You will start with the two pointer stars on the outside edge of the bowl. So there's that arc of stars that is the handle of the pot or cup or dipper, and then there's the outside edge opposite from that handle. These are called pointer stars. As we've discussed in the 
Ursa Major episode because if you draw a line between them and extend it up, you can find the North Star. But if you take this line and continue it the opposite direction, away from the North Star and away from the Little Dipper, you will quickly find the bright star Regulus. This is a bright blue-white star, which we will discuss in detail in a moment, and it forms the dot on this question mark shape that defines Leo. This is called the sickle of Leo, and it looks like a backwards question mark, with the bottom of the sickle or the dot on the question mark being this bright, bright blue star. So once you have found that definitive shape, you can see the rest of him. That sickle is what forms his head and chest, with Regulus sitting right at his heart. Behind that, you can see a very clear triangle of stars, which forms his hindquarters and leg. Towards the sickle, right below it, you can also see some stars which form his front legs. And then behind that triangle, you can see some faint stars that go downwards, and then the bright star Denebola, which indicates the end of his tail. So I love this constellation because it very much looks like what they say. Almost every culture that we're going to discuss defined this constellation as a lion. It absolutely looks like a cat, and I absolutely love cats. So uh, hopefully, if you haven't ever found it in the sky before, or if you really weren't sure what it was supposed to look like, now that you kind of know, hopefully you can see that it pretty clearly actually is a cat, which is pretty neat. If you want to see, you know, drawings of the lion or star maps of this constellation, you can always find those at our website, which is clearskieswithchloe.com. That is Chloe with a C, clearskieswithchloe.com. On the site, we also have pictures of all of the stars and the beautiful deep sky objects that we'll be talking about, so it is definitely worth a look. This constellation has 13 named stars, but we're only going to go over a few of them. Several of them were very interesting, but today I'd like to spend a little more time on the mythology because I was fortunately able to find a lot more information outside of the Greek tradition, so I'm really excited to get to that section. So the first star that we are going to discuss is of course the bright star Regulus, or Alpha Leonis. This is the only star in the constellation which has a Latin name, as the rest are Arabic, and its name means little king or prince in Latin. This name is often mistakenly attributed to Nicholas Copernicus. However, it was actually translated from the original Greek by several scholars in the 16th century, and the earliest found translation was by a German mathematician, and it was published in 1522. But Copernicus was one of the first people to really adopt and start using the name, and so he is often attributed with its creation. This star's Arabic name means Heart of the Lion, which is a theme repeated in most of the other names for this star in other cultures. This is a very, very bright star. It is the 22nd brightest overall, with a 1.3 apparent magnitude, so it's very clear in the sky. It jumps right out at you. And as I mentioned before, it is positioned right at the lion's heart, so it's at the bottom of that sickle shape. This star is also very close to us. Um, it's only 77 light years away, and it's got about 75 times the size of the sun and about four times the mass. So with such a large star being so close, it's not surprising that it's one of the brightest that we see. This star is actually 
a four star system and the overall luminosity of this system is 150 times that of our sun. However, the alpha star, Regulus itself, has a luminosity that is 288 times our sun. So it puts out 288 times the energy that our sun does. As you can imagine, this is a very hot star. So it is a blue-white star and is 12,500 Kelvin or so versus the 5,800 Kelvin of our sun. So it's over twice as hot as our sun. Now, this is a really, really interesting star. It is rotating exceptionally quickly. It rotates in under 16 hours. And due to this intense rotation, it has a very, very oblate shape. It's not round. If it rotates as little as 10 to 16% faster, the centripetal force would not be enough to hold the star together and it would completely disintegrate. This high rotation has distorted the shape highly, and it's even affecting the orbit of its companion star. This rotation also produces an effect called gravity darkening, which means that Regulus is a lot hotter at the polar regions than elsewhere, and so those regions are almost five times brighter, and the equatorial diameter is at 32% bigger than it is at the poles. So obviously this thing is not round. It's severely distorted from its original shape. And the thing is, we don't really know why this is happening. Several of the brightest stars that are in the spring and summer sky, several of which we'll be discussing in upcoming episodes, also have this quick rotation and some of this gravity darkening. But again, we're not really sure why this is happening. There is one theory though, and it's tied in with another interesting thing about this star. This star was originally estimated to be pretty young, at about 50 to 100 million years old. Then astronomers discover that one of its companions is a white dwarf star, which indicates that it's much older, around 1 billion years old. It's thought that Regulus was a much smaller star, but accumulated mass as its companion became a white dwarf, and that mass accumulation may have contributed to its high rate of rotation. This white dwarf star is a spectroscopic binary. It can't be resolved, but again, it's a white dwarf and it has an orbit of about 40 days. The two other stars in this system do share a common proper motion, so they likely came from the same origin. One is a dimmer main sequence star um, with an apparent magnitude of about 8.1, so it's not naked eye visible, and the other is believed to be a red dwarf star with a magnitude of about 13 and a half, so very dim. These two are separated by approximately 100 astronomical units, and they have an orbital period of 2,000 years. As previously mentioned, this is a zodiacal constellation, and it lies, of course, very close to you or on the ecliptic, or the path of the sun. In Leo's case, Regulus is the star that lies practically on top of the ecliptic. It's only half a degree away. Because of this, it's often occulted by the moon and sometimes even by asteroids and smaller planets, especially Mercury and Venus. The last time Venus occulted Regulus was in 1959, and the next time it will happen will be in 2044. And then after that, it won't happen for a very, very long time. Because of its position, not only can Regulus be seen from practically all latitudes, 
but it's also technically visible almost the entire year. The only time it cannot be seen is for a month around August 22nd. So basically right now, when it's too close to the sun to be seen. The next star we'll talk about is one of my favorite stars in the night sky, which is Denebola or Beta Lioness. This star's name comes from the Arabic meaning the lion's tail. This star is technically less bright than Regulus, but it's still very easy to see. It's the 61st brightest in the sky, and it has a magnitude of 2.1. So when you look up and find this constellation, you can easily see this. This star marks the very end of Leo's tail, and so it is on the opposite end of the constellation from that sickle that everyone looks for. Now, this star is not much bigger than our own. It's only 75% bigger and 75% more massive. Um, and it's about 36 light years away from us. So it's mostly so bright because it's so very close to us. It puts out about 12 times the amount of energy of our sun. So if it was too much further away, it would be fairly dim. This star, along with Regulus, is important in navigational astronomy, as these two are the only navigational stars in the constellation. This star is also what's called a delta scuti variable. So it's a variable star, which varies over a period of only a few hours. It will vary by about 0.025 magnitudes, about 10 times per day. This one is also a rapid rotating star, like Regulus. So it is an oblong shape with a bulge in the center, and it rotates at about 128 kilometers per second. This one, however, is a fairly young star. It's less than 400 million years old. Denebola does exhibit a strong infrared excess, so it's thought that it may have a circumstellar debris disk of dust in its orbit. It also belongs to a supercluster called IC2391, a group which shares a common motion but is not gravitationally bound, so they likely do come from a common origin. This origin is shared with Alpha Pictoris in Pictor, Beta Canis Minoris, and the open cluster IC2391, otherwise known as the Omicron Valorum Cluster in Vela. The third star we're going to talk about is Algeba, or Gamma Leonis. This Arabic name means the forehead, though it's sometimes referred to with its Latin name of Juba. This is a pretty bright star, and it's actually a double star. The combined magnitude is about 1.98, with the giant star being a little dimmer at 2.28, and the smaller star being 3.51. So each of these stars is independently very bright and naked eye visible. So together, they're a very bright pinpoint of light. This star is positioned in kind of the nape of the neck of the lion. It's in the middle of that sickle shape. This star, or pair of stars, is fairly far away at 130 light years, but each of these stars is very luminous, which is of course why they are so bright in our sky. The larger star puts out about 180 times the luminosity of our sun, and the smaller about 50 times the luminosity. The larger star in this pair is a giant main sequence star, and it and its companion have about a 500 year orbital period. This primary star does also have a planet, which was discovered in November of 2009. These two are pretty cool in that they're easy to resolve in a telescope, and when you look at them, you can easily see one that is an orange-red color and one that is greenish-yellow. 
The next star is Adaphora, or Zeta Leonis. And this one I chose to talk about simply because its name is pretty cool. So this is a trinary system, and there's just lots of threes involved here. So it's a trinary system, and its magnitude is 3.33, oddly enough. It's really quite far away at 260 light years away from us. But we have a main star, which is a white giant, and the second brightest, which is referred to as 39 Leonis, is to the south, and the tertiary star, 35 Leonis, is to the north. But its Arabic name means braid, which I thought was pretty cool. There is another hugely variable star in Leo, which again, we're going to just briefly talk about, but it is pretty cool. It is referred to as C.W. Leonis. Like I said, it is hugely variable. It goes from a 1.2 magnitude star, so very, very bright and easily seen, down to an almost 11th magnitude star, which is very incredibly dim. You absolutely cannot see it with your, with your naked eye. I didn't find anything telling me specifically why it varies in that way, but I know that it is in the less stable late stages of its evolution. This star is also pretty far away. It's like around four to 500 light years away from us. And it is incredibly small. It is 8% the mass of our sun and 16% the radius of our sun. So quite small. This star is typically 11,000 times more luminous than our sun, but it can vary all the way from 6,000 times our luminosity to 16,000 times the luminosity. So it's undergoing these huge swings in energy output, which of course is why its brightness varies so much. This star was also discovered pretty recently. It was discovered only in 1969 by the astronomer Eric Brecklin and his team. This thing, like I said, is in its late stages of evolution. It's a carbon star, which is embedded in a thick envelope of dust. It's working its way towards being a white dwarf, and that gaseous envelope is already about 69,000 years old, and it has almost one and a half times the mass of our sun of ejected material in that envelope. So I'm only bringing this up because it's exhibiting some pretty cool behavior, and it's very different from the stars we typically talk about. Now, the last star that we'll discuss is one that you may have heard of, and it may have stuck out to you because of its unusual name. This star is Wolf 359. Now, I have always wondered where this name came from because it sounds like a science fiction name. <laughs> and in fact, it has been used in a lot of science fiction. But in fact, it was actually discovered by a German astronomer named Max Wolf, who measured its proper motion in 1917 and happened to list it as star entry 359. So he named it Wolf 359. This is a red dwarf star, and it's got a very low magnitude of 13 and a half, so we cannot see it, but he, of course, measured it with a telescope. It's also notable in that it is very, very, very close to us. It is only seven and a half light years away. In fact, there are only two stars closer to us, and that is Alpha Centauri and Barnard Star in Opiochus. So it's the third closest star to our solar system. Despite that close proximity, it is still incredibly dim and you have to have a fairly large telescope to see it. This is also one of the lowest mass stars ever discovered. Again, it has only 8% the mass of our sun and it's one of the faintest. 
it only has 0.1% the luminosity of our sun. So it is putting out 0.1% the energy that our sun does. It's also a fairly young star, less than a billion years old, but it still has relatively high proper motion, which is what helped Max Wolf discover it. This star also has dramatic changes in its luminosity. It's referred to as a flare star, as it can have dramatic increases in its luminosity for several minutes due to magnetic activity on its surface. During these flares, it will emit strong bursts of gamma and x-rays. Now, as I had mentioned, it's been used in a lot of science fiction. There is a current podcast or radio drama called Wolf 359. I've heard of it several times, and I'm technically subscribed to it, uh, but I have never actually had the chance to listen to it. So if you guys have ever heard it or you know anything about it, feel free to let me know if it is worth the listen um, because it looks pretty cool. But this star was also used in Star Trek for the Battle of Wolf 359, and it was also mentioned in an episode of The Outer Limits. constellation has a fair number of deep sky objects and most of them are spiral galaxies. You would think if you've seen one spiral galaxy you've seen them all but there are about a dozen in this area and they are all very different and very beautiful. And in addition a supernova even occurred in this group in Messier Object 95 in March of 2012. So I would definitely recommend going out and looking at some of these Messier objects and these galaxies because, as I said, they're very, very pretty. And we live in a spiral galaxy, so they are kind of special. The first thing we're going to talk about is what's referred to as the Leo triplet, which is three galaxies. They are Messier 65, Messier 66, and NGC 3628. So M65 is an older spiral galaxy. It doesn't have much gas and dust or much star formation occurring at this time. It's mostly older stars. However, the disk of this galaxy appears to be slightly warped, and that, along with some recent starburst activity, suggests that this galaxy is actually interacting with another object, though we're not sure what. Messier 66 is an intermediate spiral galaxy, which was discovered in 1780. It's got an apparent magnitude of 8.9, which is not naked eye visible, but it's pretty bright. And it's about 36 million light years away. But it's 95,000 light years across. So it's very large. And it is notable for the prominent dust lanes, those dark parts of the spiral, and very bright star clusters. This galaxy is very, very striking. It's colorful with lots of contrast. This galaxy has encountered NGC 3628 in the past, and that interaction created exceptionally high central mass concentration in this galaxy, with a high molecular to atomic mass ratio. NGC 3628 is an unbarred spiral galaxy, and it's about 35 million light years away. It was first discovered by William Herschel in 1784, and it has a long tidal tail spanning out 300,000 light years and a broad obscuring dust along the outer edge of its spiral. So when you look at pictures of this galaxy, the edge is 
almost entirely opaque. And then of course the flat side is incredibly bright. So it's very unusual and very, very cool. And again, you can find photos of this and all of the others at the website, which is clearskieswithchloe.com. Now, if you are a person that likes meteor showers, this constellation actually does have a pretty cool meteor shower. It occurs, um, it occurs in mid-November and usually peaks on November 17th or 18th. And it's pretty good. Most years, you'll see a density of 10 to 15 meteors per hour, and they can be very bright and very colorful. And then about every 33 years, there will be a meteor storm with hundreds to thousands of meteors per hour. The last one was in 2001, so the next one is predicted to occur in 2034. In the past, there have been predicted years where it did not happen, but typically it happens every 33 years. And these radiate out from around Gamma Leonis, and they actually come from the debris from Comet 55P Temple Tuttle. So that's pretty cool. Again, if meteors are your thing, a meteor shower in November will typically have very clear winter skies. And with 15 per hour and sometimes more, you're likely to see some really cool meteors. constellation is one of the most easily found and recognized in the sky behind probably only Orion, there's a lot of mythology surrounding this. The Greek myth of Hercules and the Nemean lion is probably the most well-known, especially as the Roman myth with Heracles is basically the same, but I was actually able to find a lot of other information, which I'm really excited to share. So we'll go ahead and discuss the Greek myth first, and then we will go through the other cultures that I was able to find. So in the myth of the Nemean lion, Hercules was charged with killing this lion as the first of his 12 labors. Nemea is a town that lies southwest of Corinth, and this is where this lion lived in a cave with two mouths. Some sources state that Hera had actually sent this lion here in an act of revenge against Zeus, as that is where there was a shrine to Zeus. And so his worshippers would have to go past this frightful lion. It's even said that Hera may be the beast's mother, or it could be the offspring of the moon goddess. It's not really clear. It's even been said that he could be sired by the dog Orthrus or the monster Typhon, which was also created by Hera. So Hera did have a connection with this lion, and that will come into play later in the story. The moon goddess Selene also had a soft spot for this creature, and again, that's going to come into play. Now, once he was living in Nemea, he would come out of his cave to carry off local inhabitants. He would steal the women and hide them in the cave so that the men would come to rescue them and he could ambush the men. It wasn't great. <laughs> he was very large, very smart, and above all of that, his pelt was impenetrable by any kind of weapon, be it metal, rock, whatever else weapons are made of, it wouldn't work. <laughs> now, when Hercules went to fight this beast, he was not made aware of that fact. 
So he was like, okay, I'll just shoot it. So he shot arrows at the lion, which simply bounced off of his skin. Hercules was like, what the heck? So then he, fortunately, had also brought a club. And so he lifted his club and the lion retreated to its cave. Hercules did know or had noticed that it had two entrances. So Hercules blocked off one entrance and went into the other where they fought. He stunned the lion and then he choked it to death with his hands. Once the lion was dead, Hercules lifted it and carried it away on his shoulders in triumph. He also had been charged with bringing back the pelt to prove that it was dead to King Aristeus. But once he had it home and he had to remove the pelt to take it to the king, which if he could carry the body, it seems like he could have just carried the whole lion to the king. But that's not the point. He realized that he couldn't get the pelt off because again, it's impenetrable. So he actually used the lion's own claws to remove its pelt. And after showing it to the king, he began wearing it as a protective cloak, including the head. So he had like the lion's head on top of his head, which is either really cool or really creepy, depending on your point of view. Now, some people say that Zeus placed the lion in the stars because it is the king of all beasts. But other people think that Hera actually placed the lion in the stars as she may have been its mother, she may have nursed it. And also, as I mentioned before, the moon goddess Selene did have a connection with this lion. And so Hera could place the lion in the stars near the moon goddess where they could live in peace. As I had mentioned, Roman mythology also has this story with Heracles. And the Greek and Roman architects built many lion-headed fountains, which are thought to be related to Leo and to the fact that when the sun was in Leo, the floods would come, which would help with their harvest. So Leo was a part of their mythology and also part of their architecture, which is pretty cool. The Romans do have another story about Leo. It wasn't clear whether this story is old enough to be the actual mythology of Leo in the Roman tradition, or if this is just kind of came out later. But this is Ovid's story of Pyramus and Thisbe. Now, this is similar to like a Romeo and Juliet type of story. It may very well have been the inspiration for Shakespeare's play. I don't know, but you'll see what I mean soon. This is a story of two young people whose parents both believed that their child was too young to marry. So each set of parents told their kid that they couldn't see their significant other anymore. But the pair made arrangements to meet secretly by a mulberry tree which had white berries. When Thisbe, the female, arrived, a lion sprang out from some bushes and Thisbe ran away because she was super scared. As she ran, her veil fluttered onto the ground. The lion, which was apparently still covered in blood from its last kill, pounced on this veil and like got blood all over it. When Pyramus arrived shortly thereafter, he saw the bloody veil and he thought that she had died. He was totally freaked out, distraught, and he thought that he just couldn't live without her. And so in his anguish, he threw himself on his sword. As he perished, but before he was actually dead, Thisbe returned and she took the sword and killed herself as well. Now the myth says that the blood of this pair colored the berries of the mulberry tree red 
which of course they remain to this day. Some suggest that Zeus placed Thisbe's veil in the heavens as Calma Berenices. So the lion would be Leo, and then her veil is Calma Berenices, the neighboring constellation, which now that I think about it is pretty dark that her veil and her murderer are in the heavens. Now, this constellation had different names, of course, in many ancient civilizations, in Babylonia, Persia, Peru, Turkey, Syria, and in India, they all had different names, but they all meant some form of lion or mountain lion, except for the Babylonians, who referred to this constellation as the king, as it was thought that this constellation ruled the affairs of heaven. And in Sumeria, this constellation was seen as the monster Humbaba, who was defeated by Gilgamesh. Now, in Egypt, this constellation, much like for the Greeks and Romans, had a lot of agricultural meaning. When the sun shone in front of this constellation, it was the time of the winter solstice and also the time of the annual flooding of the Nile. So it helped them keep track of their agricultural calendar, but also was seen to herald the floods, which would of course, help their crops and let them survive for another year. In Chinese mythology, this constellation is kind of unusual in that there's a lot more detail to the constellation than we typically see. So this constellation in different times of history was seen as a horse and others a dragon. A lot of the Chinese star charts would use the current sickle of Leo and that would start a snaking line that then used Lambda and Kappa Leonis headed north up to the constellation Lynx, and was 17 stars in total. And this whole formation, like this snaking line through the sky, was known as the Yellow Dragon, or sometimes referred to as the Yellow Emperor, depending on the source. Denebola, the tail of the current Leo constellation, was not part of this constellation, but it was related in the mythology. Denebola was referred to as the Yellow Emperor, so it's thought that people that referred to the, that snake of stars as the Yellow Emperor was, were kind of conflating it all together. What you really have is a yellow dragon and a yellow emperor as two separate things. The yellow emperor refers to a legendary ruler who is credited with being the main founder of Chinese civilization. The yellow dragon snaking among the other stars is said to be his image immortalized in the sky. There are also four faint stars to the north, south, east, and west of what we know as Denebola, and they referred to as the Yellow Emperor. And these governed the four seasons, and all together with Denebola formed a group known as the Five Emperors or the Five Deities. The chariots of these emperors or deities were represented by the five stars which outline Auriga. In this area of the sky, around Leo, they also used some deep sky objects and stars to represent the emperor's heir or crown prince, as well as his personal assistant, and the court where they would meet with their privy council. A faint line of stars stretching into Leo Minor represented a delegation of nobility or a group of scholarly advisors. So again, this is pretty cool, and it's a lot more detailed than what we typically see from the Chinese constellations in that they represent people and there are more stars involved. And I just thought it was pretty cool. The last thing that we will talk about is actually about Regulus. In medieval times, a lot of stars were associated with magic and had religious significance. 
In this case, Regulus was associated with the planets Jupiter and Mars and linked to granite and mugwort for ceremonial purposes. So that is all that I have for you guys today. I really, really hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. Um, If you're enjoying the show, please, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, as that is the best way to help us reach new listeners. Please also go ahead and share the podcast with everyone that you know, and make sure you're subscribed so you get every episode directly to your feed. Now, as I mentioned before, this is my absolute favorite constellation, and I have very fond memories of this constellation, as well as many other deep sky objects, uh, stars, planets, etc. So if you guys have any favorite astronomical objects, any stories, funny, sentimental, anything like that that you would like to share, I would love to hear them. So if you guys could please send in any astronomy-related stories that you have, um, you can send them to me on Instagram at clearskieswithchloe, or you can email me at clearskiespodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, if you don't have a story, you can reach out to me anyway. I would love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, opinions, questions, anecdotes, anything and everything that you would like to share with me, I want to hear. If there are any topics you would like to hear in the future, please let me know that as well so that I can go ahead and make that episode. So again, thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and I am wishing you clear skies ahead. Clear Skies is written and edited by me, Chloe but it is also quality and fact-checked by fellow astronomer and my best friend Skylar Scan by professional nerd Robbie Hunt.